Welcome to another episode of Million Dollar Stories, where we get to interview authors all over the world and individuals who put their message down on a piece of paper for the world to read. Um, I think they show courage, and I want to really broadcast their message to the world on this podcast. So a guy that I have today, very interesting background. His name is Simon Constable. You'll find his work on the Wall Street Journal, Barron's, Forbes, Times Magazine, Fortune, Market Watch, The Street, The New York Post, The New York Sun, and The South China Morning Post. I don't need to go on any further. You know this guy has some credibility. So he's an author, broadcaster, journalist, commentator, speaker. His book, which is very fascinating, I can't wait to get into this content, The Guide to the 50 Economic Indicators That Really Matter. Simon, thanks so much for being here, man. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm very interested uh, to hear about these 50 economic indicators. Now, I'll give you a quick little background on me. Um, I have a financial degree from Duquesne University, but I got out of school and went into the entrepreneur space. I wasn't into the markets mostly. I was more into how can I create value in the marketplace so I have control of my destiny. So uh, I'm interested to hear what you have seen. You've interviewed many people, I'm assuming. And is that the genesis of the book? Or I believe you have an interesting story of how the book came to life. So I, I, uh, I studied economics at university in Scotland, University of St. Andrews, where Prince William went, although I went quite a lot before him. And one of the things with the books that we were given or assigned to read was that they were incomprehensible. And I remember 10 years after I graduated, I picked up one of the books and I looked at it. I was like, this is incomprehensible. And I have a degree in this stuff. And I then went and worked in the financial markets and it was still incomprehensible. And I thought, well, this is this is nuts. What we need is a book where everyone can read it. And, and the best insult I got when the book was published was, this This seems to be aimed at high schoolers. And I was like, yes, that <laughs> is great. exactly what I wanted. And and I, I worked with a uh, with a guy who'd been a prof- professor, and we worked together on, on this. And my, my push was that the, the chapters would basically be about 400 words long. So you could have this in the bathroom and, and, and do what you do in the bathroom. And then and that was time to read four pages, which was one chapter. And you could put it back and then go back again and read and learn by the mosaic process, which is where you don't learn everything at once. You learn a little bit, a little bit. And then when you learn the next bit, it helps make more of a picture. And by the time you've ended the book, hopefully you've got more of a clear picture of how the economy works and how the markets react to that bit in the economy. The funny thing I wanted to tell you was it was that partway through the writing of this, I felt like sending the money back. So I, I rung up my co-author from my desk at the Wall Street Channel and said, Robert, shall we just give back the money? And he said, uh, when do you want to do that? And I said, well, it's, you know, it, it's getting a bit antsy with one of the editors and so you know that seems reasonable to me and he says oh well that's normal that's normal when you're writing a book the editor's going to give you a bit of hassle and he said and i can't anyway he denies this now he says i can't anyway because i bought a shotgun how come can <laughs> you can give the money back and i said well i can give the money back because i live in new york city and after tax there was hardly anything left so <laughs> so Anyway, I said, okay, it's normal. We'll do it. And I'm glad, I'm glad he persuaded me, whatever way he did to, to get me to finish the book, because it is a great, a great thing to have it finished. And the, the, the title now is probably a little bit inaccurate that the ones that really matter, because these things change all the time. So what works as an indicator of what the, of what the economy is doing depends on the economy. So mm-hmm. in the UK, a lot of people used to look at, the number of, of mailings that went through the Royal Mail, which is the, the British equivalent of the US Postal Service. So if there were a lot of letters, that meant there was a lot of business going on, and that was a good sign. And then came the internet, and that indicator has no meaning anymore oh. because most people don't use it for that purpose. So if you get one or two letters in the mailbox a, a week, that's a lot. Now it didn't used to be. It used to be piles of you know bills and things like that, and that's how you communicated. And other things changed too, and that's why we probably need another copy of this book, which is updated with new and and more useful 
indicators than what are in the, the book now. A lot of them will be the same, but some of them won't. So that that's a very important thing to, to remember is the, the world changes, change is the only constant. That goes back to Greek times, and we've got to stay on top of that all the time. Well, you you brought up something I want to make sure that the readers and uh, well the listeners are uh, picking up on, that uh, if you write a book and you write it at a 13 to 14-year-old level, you did it the right way. You want for people to understand what you are saying. And the most popular books and the most popular speeches are written at a 13 to 14-year-old level. So yep. well done on that. Uh, also, uh, whenever I was growing up, going to school... And uh, my college was all about what Warren Buffett was doing. And they kept harping on how important it was to read the quarterlies of any stock that you are going to invest in. So how do you beat the market? I think it comes down to leadership. That's the way I look at it. And now that I'm an entrepreneur and I have multiple businesses, I truly believe that's the number one indicator if a business is going to you know, withstand the test of time. Maybe I'm wrong on this. Maybe you see a different perspective. But, you know, when you got Warren Buffett or Elon Musk or individuals at the helm that are risk takers, but also just magicians, you could put some money into them and say, you know what, I think they'll problem solve their way out of this. So what would you say is like the number one, two or three top indicators or symptoms of a successful company that you can invest in? Well, I think you're right about looking at a, a company's reports every <clears throat> every quarter and reading them. Ten Qs, I think they're called, right? Ten Qs, ten, 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 ten Qs, and and three ten Qs and one ten K, and they, these are the the, the the major reports that you need to look at. I think that's very important, as is the quality of the management, as is the quality of the industry they're in. So some industries are very difficult to be in because there is no moat. There is no one, there's no stopping somebody else setting up in business next door and producing exactly the same product. And I think of farming this way, right? If you're growing wheat, you might grow wheat better than the person next door or the person a thousand miles away, but is it going to be materially different in terms of the profits you can get? So, and that, that's an extreme example, I realize. If, again, with with big oil companies, the question is, are you going to be able to sell your oil for more than the next oil company can sell it for? Probably not. Mm -hmm. So there are other things you have to, to look at. So I think you've got to look at the, the industry, the quality of the management, the fiscal discipline within the com company is very important when you're looking at companies. And, and then look at the industries that are doing well. So some industries have played out and they aren't going to work and companies would do well to get out of them. So a very good example of this is the nuclear corporation, uh, which is now called Nucor, which in the 60s decided that being in the nuclear business was terrible because it was a lot of money and to, to, to spend on capital projects and didn't really work in terms of making profit. So they changed into being a steel company using electric arc furnaces. And that's where you zap the iron ore with electricity in a big crucible. Think of it like a big bowl for your soup, but very big. And then you zap it with a little electricity and out comes molten steel. That was a very good business, a very flat organization. I interviewed the the, the head of that company once uh, because he I wrote a piece about his company and he said I was wrong and I said well tell me how how wrong I am on the phone please because then and then I wrote another story and got a scoop so you know, listening is the most important thing I think when when you're writing anything correct and that organization was so flat that when I emailed him it went directly to him he, he turned to his secretary said arrange a time and then I was on the phone with him within a couple of days. Wow. So that's a flat organization. Flat organizations are very good. They know what they were doing, which was making steel using electric arc furnaces, which is a it's a very efficient way to do it. It works. It doesn't require massive amounts of capital, uh, whereas a blast furnace in the steel industry would. And I figure you probably know a bit about steel because you're in Pittsburgh, so, yes, so the steel thing is 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 very relevant here. That's 
that's on a company level. But the the book is was really designed to look at the economy as a whole because when you have the the whole economy looking at it, it's hard to run from what's happening in the economy, no matter mm-hmm. who you are, no right. matter what company you are. Now we know that the good companies run by the really smart people. They're going to last. They're going to last out through a recession, through a slowdown, through a tr- an economic trauma, if you want to call it that. They're going to survive. But other companies won't, and some will go by the wayside and some won't. And you really find out how good a company is during a recession. I, I think it's Warren Buffett that says, uh, when you have a recession, you you find out who's been uh, b- bathing with no clothes, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, which because which, the tide goes out. But the, the whole point of this is was to I wanted ideally every, everyone from someone selling hot dogs on the corner of Sixth Avenue, which was near to, to our office in New York, at, to someone with a PhD looking at it and saying, "Okay, this is very simply written. You know, this is a new." thing for them and we did put some things in there that were new that weren't used by a lot by many people and then sort of take take that away and say okay this is what the whole economy is doing and then then i think that's a very good place to start and then go down a level and say okay which industries are going to do well in this environment which companies are going to do well within that industry which are the best which i think is how jack welsh did look at his his companies. He wanted the, the the divisions he had to be number one division in their industry. I don't think there was work, but that's what he wanted. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, does that so, make sense? Yeah, so the leadership does really matter. I know that Jeff Bezos had this great interview where he said, every company around me was falling apart because of the stock price. But our numbers internally were so strong that we didn't really care about stock price because we didn't need to raise any more money which gave us such an advantage uh, over the next five to 10 years, because if we didn't care about raising money, we had enough, our internals were good. So stock price really didn't matter. Anybody who bet on us at that point, they were going to win for sure. Of course, every other dot-com company was going out by the wayside very fast in 2001, 2002, 2003. So uh, it's pretty interesting to see how leadership really matters and uh, that's why you see people like the Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. They have uh, some type of skill set to just last. And um, I just respect those type of people. Now, I don't agree with a lot of things that they do personally, but um, you could see a leader who's strong and who's not. Jack Welch is one of them. Very, very strong yeah. leader. Um, but I'm very glad that you wrote this book because you were saying that you almost didn't. And you have 243 reviews. That's very tough to get out there. And so people really enjoy this book. And uh, I commend you for that. Now. Um, I think politics plays plays a big factor in maybe the first, you know, in, in, in the initial stages whenever you're investing. So case in point, I'm a big believer in leverage, positioning and timing. Those three characteristics, if I can kind of focus on leveraging my resources and I can position it and then I can time it right. And how do you time it right? I think they always say it's not about timing. It's time in the market, not timing the market. But um, yeah. I'm in real estate. I do a couple other things. So those are what I look for. All right. There are certain things to get in and get out. But um, is it a game that you look at as, wow, maybe you are all about positioning yourself um, and being very diversified, but also being strategic where you're moving money around constantly, depending on a few different factors. So if you were to give advice to anybody listening, I know this is not financial advice. What do you recommend? Is it all about time in the market or timing the market or being well diversified based off of what you are seeing on the local level? Well, it, it, I think it depends who you are. So you're obviously sophisticated in, in finance. You have a d- degree in finance. You have experience in the markets. You know what you're doing. Uh, you have the emotional makeup to know what not to do and what to do most people don't and and please don't take offense at this but one of the things i know is that everything that makes people good people and nice and kind people is what makes them terrible in the market (laughs) no i understand what you're saying there you're right you're right so um that's important so if, if if you're a person who sort of might sort of tear up at a sad movie then that that's emotion coming out which isn't a bad thing but when you have emotion coming out when you're investing, that's a problem, 
Mm-hmm. Right. So if if the if the entire world looks like it's going to end by next Tuesday and then some and and never come back to, to life according to the media, then you might be tempted to sell everything because you don't want to lose more than you already have, and that's the wrong thing to do. Now it takes something different in your psyche to be able to do that. Now if you can if you can have the two if you can have two of yourself, one of which is you tear up at a funeral or you tear up at a, 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 a soppy movie or something when you do that. But at the, at the same time, when you're dealing with your money and your investments, you're as cold as ice, you know, really psychologically sort of unmoved by what's happening, then that will be great. Most people can't. So I think for the, for the most people, if you can't do those two things and be cold and sort of calculating when you're putting the money back in and saying, okay, it's March 23rd, 2020, when the market bottomed and saying, now's the time to buy. It's very easy to say that when you look back, but to do that then would have taken a lot of emotional strength. And most people will not have that. And And I don't think badly of the people who can do it, and I don't think badly the people who can't. It's just the people who can't shouldn't be timing timing the market. They shouldn't be saying now's the time. They should just be putting the money in the market and leaving it mm. because otherwise they will probably be buying high and selling low, which is the way to lose money really, really quickly. So it, it isn't it isn't about what's what's the one right way. It's the one right way for you, right? Great it's, point. Right. So. And a lot of people can't do that. And that's a reasonable thing. I mean, I I, I have plenty of emotions going through my, my head. And it certainly, I remember that sort of March 23, 2020 was, was horrible. And it was horrible for multiple reasons. And we know it was. And there was a huge layoffs. And it looked like, you know, the, the companies wouldn't stop firing people. It it, 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 looked, it looked terrible. So I understand that. And I was there too. I was thinking, oh my goodness, is the w- entire world going to end next week? And there were uh, other people who thought worse. Well, yeah, I think you bring up a very good point there. Um, so I realized after interviewing hundreds of entrepreneurs that the truly wealthy people make their money whenever there's blood on the streets. Um, they made big moves in 2008, 2009 in the US when the real estate market started to crash. So they had the gumption, maybe the wherewithal or some type of, you know, belief that the market's going to come back. So why don't I get in while everybody else is getting out? And there is a lot of strength required for that. So that's what I've realized. Um, also, and throughout your research, have you realized, and, and maybe I'm, I, I'm looking at this from a new perspective as of the past five years, but politics, let's go into that for a second. Um, the touchy subject of politics, but I knew as um, an investor and uh, an entrepreneur, I knew the moment that Joe Biden became president that they were going to turn on the printing machine, which means the dollar value would decrease and I knew real estate would go up. So I made sure I bought into more real estate, which was a very smart move. But I'm looking around at all my friends in the real estate market. They're like, yeah, this is the right thing to do. I go to my friends and family outside of it. And they're like, oh man, I'm going to hold off because I don't know what's going to happen. And it's like they're playing by two sets of roles. So I knew that was going to happen. If I would go back in time and I would say to maybe a stock investor, I would also say, hey, they're going to turn on that um, military industrial complex again, because I think whenever this administration gets in, they're going to get back into more wars. Therefore, Lockheed Martin is going to go up. So I would bet big on them at some point. Now, do you look at that type of stuff, too? Because to me, it's kind of easy to see based off of their political agendas, the right and the left. What do you say about that? I think that's I think that's a very important thing to look at. I think we've we've definitely got a defense spending boom coming our way. A lot of countries are wanting to rearm mm-hmm. the percentage of GDP that countries have spent on armaments in the in the West. I'm talking about the US and its allies, basically, and that includes Japan, which isn't exactly in the West, but it might as well be. It's an ally. Then there will be a lot more spending on military items and capital goods. So if you look at the fleet that the US has, a lot of those vessels, which are very big and very powerful, a lot of them are 40 to 50 years old. 
They go back to they go back to the Reagan era, and they need either overhauling and refitting, or there needs to be new ones. Now, no one has a navy the size of the U.S., but it probably does need an upgrade. Britain has got some new vessels out there, two new Queen Elizabeth class aircraft carriers, which is is a lot. Uh, I don't think people really realize how how dominant the U.S. Navy is. And then when you go down the list, you suddenly realize that even a Navy run by Britain, which is a small island, it's a a British country, but it's a small island, is right up there near the top in terms of a a naval power. It has big vessels, it has destroyers, it has frigates, and it it has aircraft carriers. And then you, you very quickly, you get down to places with one with one rowboat. Uh, so which which sounds ridiculous but when you look at the lists of who's got what and you look at china china has has a lot of tonnage out there in terms of ships but a lot of those are very small ships and they're coastal vessels and yes it has three aircraft carriers now but it hasn't ever put those to use ever anywhere in terms of a war for the last 50 years it's never been tested in in a battle scenario and i think that does matter uh, but Britain seems to always be going to war. Uh, one thing I will say about the British, being born British, I can tell you this, uh, the British people queued up to go fight Argentina. They are. Uh, yeah, yeah. Wow. They, they, they did. They they did in, in, in 1982 when the, uh, the Falkland Islands was invaded by, by Argentina. A lot of young men, because it was primarily men in the, the army and the Air Force and the and the Navy at that point queued up. They, they wanted to go. They wanted to go fight the Argentinians. So there's there's a lot of of that sort of let's let's go defend our territories in in Britain. But but back to to this sort of wave. I think we're going to see a wave of defense spending for things like tanks, big capital equipment like ships, planes, drones, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And that that will be very interesting. Remember, for since basically since the Soviet Union fell, there's been a bit of a downtrend in defense spending, and it may have gone a little bit too far. We'll see what happens. That's an area where you do have a moat because your competition is somewhat limited. You will not be buying defense equipment from China or Russia, so you don't have to worry about any companies in China or Russia competing against you if you're if you're operating in the US and you can probably only sell it to allies like NATO allies or close to NATO allies whatever that means but it it's a it's a variable thing but yeah i think look, looking at the politics is important i think the best time to invest though is when you have what in britain we call a hung parliament but in in in, in america you call it gridlock where no decisions get made. <laughs> yeah, right. Right? So that's perfect, right? When no decisions get made, this is great because nothing bad is happening. Now, you might say nothing good is happening either, but if nothing is happening, we can guarantee that nothing bad is happening. And I True. think that is something that I learned when I was on Wall Street in the early 1990s, which I realize is ancient history now, but it was something that was like, oh, no, it's great. They won't do anything. That's fine. Right? That means they won't do anything wrong. Right. That is that is the problem with any party dominating the situation in Washington D.C. If you can have gridlock, you won't. They won't do anything wrong. Hopefully, yeah, the balance of power. Balance of power is very much a uh, a positive, right? Because uh, you can have that gridlock pretty easily. Then, um, yeah. What are you seeing? Uh, obviously, you're you're paying attention to the markets in the economy. Uh, as an entrepreneur, I kind of get into my own little bubble with my own group, and we kind of just do our thing and make adjustments accordingly. But uh, you know, we 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 kind of focus on our strengths and adding value to the marketplace. So I kind of step away from paying attention to the news and the and the media as much as possible. So, what are you noticing? Are you seeing a certain trend of? Um, I mean, when it comes to the corporate structure, I just think AI, automation, virtual assistants, things that are happening in, in the marketplace that are just actually going to decimate uh, a lot of companies. So I think there's going to be major layoffs. And I believe the solution, this is what I preach to my listeners and my readers, entrepreneurship and capitalism will get people 
out of this reliance on one income stream. So I look at this as a uh, as a time that you need to start creating multiple revenue streams. And uh, I think coming down the pike is a scary situation for corporations hiring robots, creating automation that are going to completely remove a lot of the workforce. So the the economy is going to take a hit. So what what are you what are you noticing? What I'm thinking ab ab about that, and I'll come back to something else I'm noticing a, a bit later when when I've, I've tackled this is it's something similar to what happened in the early. 19 the late 80s early 1990s so before faxes were invented and and were common in every office and i realize faxes are not there now right but they were for a while in the 1990s faxes were how you communicated with other companies when a signed document needed to be sent so faxes came along and eliminated telex operators now telexes were the precursor to faxes, but you needed someone who was very clever to be able to use them. They needed a lot of training. They were all made redundant pretty much overnight by the introduction of faxes. And the fax machines were relatively cheap, certainly for corporations, even in the early days. And then everyone could do a fax. And I don't know anyone who does one now. So faxes went out. Thank God. I can't stand them. Yeah. <laughs> I, but, but it went out. And the real point is, is that, yes, a lot of people were laid off then who were doing that because every major office had someone who was a telex operator so that's every major corporation would have one of these things you could send trade confirmations on, on these things and you know, I, I never operated one i was sort of the dealing with crinkly papered fax faxes a, a lot of the time i think this is going to be like that is that people will be laid off but the more efficiency and they will be put to better the people will be put to better use doing other things so i'm thinking about when i was at school we were told no you can't use a calculator because you've got to use your brain instead of looking at the calculator as a tool to help you get it right now it, it's very useful to be able to do something in your head to make sure you haven't hit the wrong buttons on the calculator that's important. So do do, do you do the you do the swag, which is the back of the envelope. Say, is that right? Okay, that's what it is. Let me try it on the calculator now. Okay, it's similar in size, so I know I've got it broadly right. It's a tool. Yes. It's a useful tool. And AI will be a useful tool for people who know how to use it. Now I know how to use a, a calculator. I know how to use a very complicated financial calculator that you probably used at, at, at college when you were doing your finance degree. Yeah, eighty five. Of course. Yeah. 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 So it's, I think AI will be a, a tool and a very useful tool for a lot of people. It's in its infancy right now. It, it, it really is. It's going to go a long way. And I think it, it's, it's incumbent on anyone who doesn't want to get left behind to dive in and learn something about it. It's going to help you. Does a calculator mean that you know my mathematical knowledge is worthless? No. It doesn't. It helps me do it faster and more accurately, you know. And that—that's a useful thing. That—that's a very useful thing. And I think AI will be a very useful thing. It's still got some problems, though. And one of them is that if so, AI cannot go and scrape the web to find out what I'm going to say to you now. It can do it looking back and scrape the web and find that, but it can't initiate it and go and question you or go and question me. It isn't doing that now. It's looking at past events. Now, admittedly, that could be one minute past in the past, or it could be a week or whatever it is. So that that's an interesting thing is that that still cannot be done. Is it going to take over other stuff that is not so, you know, not so creative? Yes, I mean it will help doing diagnostics of of health, which will be very useful. Humans are imperfect, but I think it will be like for doctors, it will be a help, a helpful thing. Doctor comes along and says, I think it's this. Let's see what AI says. If it matches, then great. And if it doesn't, I'm sure there will be a discussion. Like, well, let's have a look at this again. Let's get a second opinion, whatever it is. I think it'll be very useful. I think a lot of people will learn to use it in the same way that computers didn't make us all redundant, right? Yeah, that's right. They didn't make you redundant. 
No, I, you know, I think that um, whenever it comes to growing AI and automation, mediocrity will not be tolerated. So I believe if this, if if the people see this coming, they need to up their skills and their value to the marketplace yes. or to their employer. So it could be a very good thing or a bad thing, depending on your philosophy of what you think is uh, what you deserve, right? And I think that with all this coming down the pike, individuals and correct, you know, I'm gonna want to hear what you have to say about this, but individuals out there working, let's just say at a uh, burger joint, sitting there, not trying to up their game, not in trying to increase their customer service, their ability to articulate their solutions or their product to the customer, are actually asking their employer for a, a raise, a minimum wage increase from seven bucks to 15 bucks, but not upgrading their quality of a person, uh, of their skill sets to them, the employer, the business owner, the franchise corporation are going to say, you know what, why don't I just hire a robot to do what you just, what you're doing? Because if you're going to ask for 15 bucks, it's actually cheaper for me to build a robot to take care of that. Now I'm just going to let go of your job. You go do your thing. However, it could have been resolved if they said, I'm going to up my game. I'm going to bring more to the table. And then if I deserve it, 15 bucks. So it's two different philosophies. I think that's creating some type of um, speeding up of the process of potentially job loss. And this leads me to my next point and see what you no, think. I, I, can, I, can, I, can I butt in? Sorry, yeah. if, if yeah. that's okay. I don't mean to be, to be, to be rude. So yes, the, the thing that when you go to school and, and if you're fortunate enough to go to college, learning how to learn is the most important thing. It's not yes. what you learn. It's learning the method of learning because you're going to have to learn a lot of new stuff all the time. So I, I've i got a number of degrees and I've, I've learned how to learn and I know that I'm going to have to keep learning every day of my life. And that's fine. It's, 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 it's weightlifting for the brain. So when you come across something new, the hardest thing I ever learned in my life was to learn pension accounting, which I thought was, was going to fry my brain. And it took me a year working with some very high quality actuaries to understand it. And I was at General Motors doing that. Oh, wow. And it, it was, it, it, it was really, really, really hard. Um, we were doing analysis. It wasn't just to do the accounting. We, we had to understand how to read the accounts and understand what it meant. But that, actually was a good thing for me because it gave me a boost. I said, well, if I can learn that, which was as clear as mud for about six months until I'd actually gained some knowledge, then I knew I could do anything and learn anything, which is the most important thing. And people shouldn't think, oh, well, I've left school now or I've left college or I've I've done my MBA, therefore I don't have to read any, any new challenging books that are going to stretch my brain in ways that I didn't think and to give me some answers that I didn't want to hear that changed my mind. And I think that's very important for anyone who wants to stay on top of their game. Sorry to interrupt you. Back to you. No, you bring up a good point. Um, you know, the 58% of people never read a book outside of high school ever again. 58%. So the ability to... They should start with my my book. They, they should. should. Start with, <laughs> or mine, one of the two. Oh, yours. Yes, yeah, 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 yours too. <laughs> So, yeah. So I think people hit a certain level and they stay there for the rest of their life, living the same day over and over. And there's a great quote by, I believe it's Ben Franklin. Um, Most men die at 25, but they're not buried until they're 75. And that is a phenomenal quote. You stay at a certain point and you just relive it. Um, that leads me to my next point here. And I want to see what you think about this. I believe we are entering an economy or a world, however you want to look at it, of haves and have nots. And it does begin. I believe with the education system. So uh, individuals who have everything or learn how to have everything are given a certain set of information while the other people are saying, hey, you deserve this. You are supposed to be given this. Hey, it's because of this person. You don't have what you deserve. So it automatically puts people on a certain path of either success or true pain for the rest of their life, victor or victim. What do you say about that? I think you have to work for everything. You have to you have to get down there and work. And when you when you fall off your bicycle, metaphorically or in reality, in my case, many times I don't know how many pints of blood I I, I, I bled onto the pavement with. Um, I'm sure every every young person's done that, and I I have no regrets at doing that because it taught me you just you you, you try 
you fail, you get back up again, you try, you fail, you get back up again. And eventually you find what is for you and where you can add value. And that's the way you earn some money. And it's not to do with anyone else. It's to do with you. And you're going to run into people who don't like you. That's fine. You're going to run into people you don't like. And yeah, that's that's life. But you just have to say, well, okay, that's okay. That didn't work out, which is one of the phrases I, I learned in America, um, which was, it, it wasn't like, oh, you, you were fired. And that's terrible. And that's the end of your career and everything. And, you know, I, you know, I hate these people or whatever. It's no, it didn't work out. There are plenty of jobs out there that you or me are not right for. Right. And I, I don't mean to be rude oh, to you. 100%. I'm unhirable as an employee at this point. Yes. Yeah, I'm with yeah. you, man. Yeah. Right. So it's okay for it not to work out. You know, you might want to be something. Um, you might want to be a paratrooper in the British Army. Well, is that going to work out if you're not prepared to stick a bayonet in somebody's chest? So I, I don't think I am. Um, or, you know, in most of the occasions, I don't think I'd be right for that. You know, I might, if I'd wanted that, then I would have very quickly found out that that wasn't going to be right for me. And there are other jobs that you have people in, like being an air traffic controller. I don't know if you watched uh, Pushing Tin about uh, air traffic controllers. Yeah. It looks like a, an awfully stressful job. You've Great got money. Of, terrible job, though, I would think. Yes. Yeah, t- terribly stressful. Now, some people can do it, and they've got that mentality to do it. You know, is is it right for everyone to be a boxer? You know, Mike, Mike Tyson trained – I've been reading about this. He trained – in insanely hard to become a boxer and and kept his head going he was getting up at four in the morning and he said if i if i hear of anyone getting up at four in the morning i'm gonna get up at two in the morning and go training so i mean it, it really you know is is that the life that is right for everybody no absolutely not um certainly not for me you know get, getting up and doing that but it was for him so I think people have got to realize that what, what is right for you, it doesn't make you a better or a worse person. You might want to be something, but it's a, a, that looking inside yourself and saying, well, is that right for me? And the only way to find that out is to try, fail, try again, fail, try again, try again, try again, try again, until you find where, you, where you're wearing the career clothes that you feel comfortable in. And that is going to be different for absolutely everybody. You know, you might, you know, you might train as a doctor, you go and be a doctor and you don't like it. And the best thing to do at that point is to change yeah. if you can. And I, after looking at your background, I thought we would disagree on a lot of things and we are on point with many. Are you a Jim Rohn fan? Seems like you're well-read. Do you, have you ever read anything about what Jim Rohn has preached. He was one of the greatest speakers no. that the world's ever seen. Have you ever? No, no, okay. no, no, I haven't. I haven't, which, which means I, I need you to send me an email with the, <laughs> the, the name of his, the best book he's got so I can get hold of it. So yes, please he, send me that. He has many, but uh, he, he's, he's passed now, but um, Jim Rohn uh, talked about how the world does not care about your need. It only cares about your seed. And, uh, and what you just said there, it's, it's all about the stoic approach, right? Where, you know, if you can just, muster up the courage, the strength, and the ability to keep going, um, eventually you're going to serve. And service to the many leads to greatness. And uh, that is greatness internally and greatness uh, externally. So I love what you said there. And the the queen, the the late queen of of Britain was a great example of of the service to to the realm and to the Commonwealth. And I know that this doesn't really fit with, I'm sorry, that's my cat going across the desk um so um the the queen was was crowned when she was 25 years old and i think it was the most televised event in the world at that time so she's 25 years old she's having the archbishop of canterbury put a crown on her head in front of anyone with a tv in the entire world and she is she served from then until when she was in her 90s and never, never stepped out of line, never thought of 
resigning or saying, okay, I'm, I'm done with this. She kept doing her job, which was to serve the British people. So people think, oh, you know, it, it, the, the monarchy doesn't make any sense. And in, in theoretically, it doesn't. But in practice, for Britain, it really works. And again, I, I specify for Britain. I'm not saying it would work in America. Probably wouldn't. But it does work in, in Britain. Now we've got a king who will do the same thing. Obviously, he's not 25. He's 75. So he's got probably less of a stretch ahead of him than she had. But he will serve the country to the best of his ability, which, of course, will depend on the day of the week um, that it is, because he'll, you know, some days we have a bad day, some days we have a good day. And I think that that service is something that's, that's very important. You see that in New York. You have people working very hard who are poor, people working very hard who are rich, but they're all working very hard, mm-hmm. or almost all. I don't say all because I'm sure there are some people who are lazy, but I would say the vast majority of people in New York are like that. And, you know, getting up in the morning and saying, I've got something to give is great. Money's one thing, but but knowing knowing that you've, you've gone out there and you've done your best and you've given the world something can be this big. I'm, I'm, I've got like a half a man, half a centimeter there. It can be that big, half a centimeter. What is that? Quarter of an inch, right? So sorry, I I speak yeah. European sometimes. <laughs> no, I, I I love what you're saying, and it uh, to tie in another Jim Rohn quote. He says, uh, um, "Don't wish the world to be different. Wish that you were better." And what you're saying is that no matter what, and maybe this is the final tie-in with your book, um, did you realize that uh, no matter what, all these indicators, it doesn't matter what type of economy or the world that is around you, you can thrive in any which one. Have you noticed that depending on your strategies, yeah. Who, yeah. your your belief patterns? Is that what you came to the conclusion of? Um, well, absolutely. I and mean, people succeed or or fail all the time. Right. There's always, I mean, Jim, Jim Kramer has this right. And I don't know if he identifies it correctly all the time, but no one, no one is perfect, but he, he's right on this key thing, which is you, there is always a bull market somewhere. There is always somebody setting up and, and starting a, a business at the most ridiculous time. So I know a group of people who started a bit, a business at the depth of the great recession. And they started a Wall Street company at that moment, which you would have think would have been the most terrible idea possible. And yet that company has grown. I don't want to embarrass them. They've done very well. But that is take, takes a lot of guts. But they did it and it worked. And you'll see lots of examples of that and saying, okay, we're going to start a company. We'll see how it goes. And, you know, maybe it would have failed. Maybe it didn't. But it didn't fail for them. And it would have failed for other people. But yeah, you you can make a, a something out of something. And there are always naysayers. Get them out of your life. Get those people out of your life. You don't need them. <laughs> well, there where, wherever there's chaos, there's opportunity. I truly believe that. And uh, are you familiar with Route 66 in the United States? I've, I've heard of Route 66. It's a very long road. Yep. So I just but- came back last week. I did a Route 66 trip from uh, Utah all the way to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, because it's always... It's been on my bucket list for about seven years now. And um, I realized, you know, during the trip, the reason why that road is even exists is because of there was chaos within the mid states of the United States right around 1930, 1940. There was a big dust up and uh, it was very it was a dry spout. So individuals couldn't get work. And what they did was they moved west in order to move west. They needed a road. And so they kind of made their own road. And then it became this booming uh, boom, booming town throughout the entire uh, Route 66, but they headed west, and that's how you could look at California becoming the mecca that it it was at least. Maybe not now anymore, but it was. So because there was that chaos, there was opportunity elsewhere, and I think that happens every day all around you. So that's significant. I want to get into your uh, your podcast though. I believe it's called the Constable Confidential. Is that correct? Constable Confidential is what is what it is. I have a, a background in broadcast from when I was at the Wall Street Journal and then before that at thestreet.com, and that was mainly finance and economics and the intersection there. But I've lately I've seen the the important missing bit of that was the geopolitics, which is basically international politics. So I'm just trying to calm my cat down here. That's all right. Um, nice. It's crinkling the paper. So 
So I'm going to move move her. But it's a, it's about what's going on in the world that is important. And right now, what's going on in the world that's important is what's happening between Israel and Gaza, which is as provoked by Hamas. And, and also we're seeing stuff in Ukraine. So it's that sort of thing where it's a big deal. And those things could deteriorate into a situation where it starts to affect the entire world in, in a very bad way. So in particular, in the Middle East, there's a lot of oil being drilled, and that could very easily be a disaster for America, for mm-hmm. Europe, if, if the oil flow stops. It's a disaster already for the people of Israel and for, for many of the people of, of, of Gaza. It's it's not a nice situation. Similar is happening in Ukraine. You've got you've got a war there which is looking increasingly like the First World War, where people are just lobbing bombs at each other and killing each other, and it's continuing. So it's about those sort of things. And I get the best people I can, uh, which doesn't mean they're necessarily the very best people in the world um for for that job but it's the best i can and i try and draw draw them out and so far they've been fantastic and i would say that they're they're, they're brilliant so it's been a, it's it's been very interesting i've learned and i hope people who listen learn yeah uh, so you interview people who are on the ground or people who are very well versed in the topic right yeah so- I, well I've, I've been interviewing a guy who's in jerusalem i've been interviewing uh, people who are very well versed, so that includes uh, the, the the Shah of Iran's son, the Shah of Iran who was ousted in 1979. His wow. son, I've interviewed him a number of times, and uh, there's a guy in Jerusalem I've interviewed. There's other people I've interviewed from various things that are going on around the world and that are relevant to the bigger picture. So I've also interviewed a woman the other day about something that was going on in Scotland that seemed to be the worst economic advice that that was possible and it was put in place by the scottish government and i'll I'll let people listen to that podcast to find out what that was about but it's 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 interesting because if that policy comes from scotland and then ends up in america it won't be good (laughs) so that's the sort of thing that i like to look at and get people to explain it in the simplest way possible very much like you do uh, uh, what's your biggest fear? What after talking to these experts, um, is it an obvious answer of World War Three? Because what I'm seeing is we're looking at a ripe situation where we got Ukraine and Russia battling, and then you see China, Taiwan, you see uh, Iran funding, I believe, funding Hamas to fight Ira- Israel. Ira- Iran fans of funds basically almost every militant organization in the Middle East. So that includes Hezbollah. Islamic Jihad, as, as, as far as I know, Hamas, the Houthi rebels, various militias in Iraq, and the the ISIS crew who set up their caliphate and then failed to be able to feed their people. So th- there's a lot of bad, bad actors there being funded from Iran, and that's not very good. And there's a lot of call by some people that I've talked to saying, well, really, the, you have to... It, Cut the uh, cut the eyes out of the octopus, right. and, and that's that's to, to, to Tehran. Uh, I hope there is not. You muted. You went there. We go. You went mute for a second there. Sorry about that. So, so yes, it, it, nobody wants World War Three at all, and it would be very bad. And I think the 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 telephone lines are open, and that's why Anthony Blinken went straight out to the Middle East to talk to everybody so that that doesn't happen. But I think that's the idea. When you have an open line between people, you can make better things happen. And I I, I don't know what was happening in those meetings, but I imagine it was a calm down moment. Please calm down. We don't need this to escalate. Let's not make this escalate. Wow. Yeah. Scary times, I think. And and I see our government giving money to Iran and Iran's obviously giving money to, like you said, these militant organizations, uh, nothing really makes sense. So what do you believe? And this is a, this is a crazy question to have answered in a, in a matter of 90 seconds, but what's the quick fix? I know there is no quick fix, but what do you recommend as, wow, this would be a great next step to getting peace back in the Middle East. And I'll give you my oh. answer right out of the gate, but I believe leadership in the United States um 
declined on 20 January 2021. And the moment that happened, you started to see a movement from Putin. You started to see in all kinds of activity with Iran. You started to see now Israel and within Gaza, uh, all of the insanity started happening. So strength um, provides peace. But what are your thoughts? Well, I think if you look back to Reagan, that definitely is is what it is. You know, strength provides peace. Ronald Reagan you know, came up from the seventh. You know, after being governor of California. Came out was very good communicator, which isn't surprising. He, he worked in Hollywood, and he had strength, and and yet strength, and yet openness to not humiliate the the opposition, which was the Soviet Union at that time. So it was like tear down this wall, and we saw the meetings of him. We've seen the, the pictures of him stepping out of his car and shaking hands with Gorbachev, and and making things making things happen in a big way. And you need somebody like that who has strength but also humility at the same time and getting people to do that. I don't know who that is now. And, and by the way, I think if any if anyone could, could solve this situation in the Middle East, because it's been going on for a very long time, then they would deserve about 10 Nobel Prizes, all for themselves. Yes, yes. I, uh, I, I hope that this, uh, this, 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 train corrects itself and somebody makes some moves to do so so uh seems like we're on the right the same page by the way i can't believe it with all your background in the media and and uh and and, and i thought we would disagree on many topics but we are on point so it has been an honor to talk with you guys the, the on podcast, the talk with you too thank you thank very you. much the, the podcast is called constable confidential you can find it on spotify is that right yes and then the book is called guide to 50 economic indicators that really matter Simon, I really appreciate it. And uh, is there any other way to get a hold of you, whether it's a website or a social media channel you recommend? Um, I would recommend that that thing, or people can go on my LinkedIn, LinkedIn, and, and have a look there and leave a comment, uh, or send me an email there or a message or whatever. I'm I'm pretty open to receiving things. I don't like uh, I don't like hate mail, but uh, other than that, if it's just a criticism, I'll take it. Okay, a criticism <laughs> I'll take. Hate mail I won't. Well, I don't so, think you're going to get any hate mail from my listeners. I don't I don't think yet. You, you said everything that we agree with, it seems like. So uh, I think you're safe. But Simon, thank you so much. Guys, a million dollar book can lead to a million dollar life. Right on.